you're a coal out here, your rock formations are like this, horizontal, and so when they mine, they can do all that long wall mining and stuff, right? And in the anthracite, it's shaped more like this. Um, and so the companies, they like to hit the thick, flat spots, you know, but they leave a lot of the steep pitches alone, and they leave a lot of the thin veins alone that might only be two feet, three feet wide. Um, and so there was a lot of untouched stuff that wasn't profitable for the companies to mine, and so that's what the bootleggers went after. Hi, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm Katie Myers. That's Mitch Troutman, a writer, educator, organizer, and jack-of-all-trades living in central Pennsylvania. Right now, he's talking about coal bootlegging. In Pennsylvania, unemployed coal miners took their work and their power into their own hands in the 1920s to 1940s by bootlegging coal, that is, mining coal on their own, without a company involved. Troutman is a descendant of these coal bootleggers, and he's dedicated a lot of time to telling their story. After years of research, he compiled these histories into a book called The Bootleg Coal Rebellion, The Pennsylvania Miners Who Seized an Industry, 1925-1942. to Today, we're bringing you a conversation with Mitch Troutman himself, held at the Red Spotted Newt Bookstore in Hazard, Kentucky. Listen for a Q&A with Troutman, and then a deeper group discussion on the process for Troutman's book in Labor and Coal Mining in the Mountains. By and by, you women gonna cry let's see two winters ago now i went down in one of the like three remaining underground mines where people are still doing the work by hand like very primitive you know some of the mines out in uh like wyoming i think it is or montana you know they can produce like a hundred thousand tons a day whereas these mines might produce like 10 you know uh people are still uh, timbering with wood by hand, uh, drilling holes. Now they have uh, air and electric powered tools, but uh, still by hand and uh, blowing with dynamite. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's pretty wild. Like I said, it's all like this pitch, especially the stuff that's left is so steep. Um, and so a lot of the work being in there is literally just pulling yourself up all day, you know, like 15, 20 stories to where you're trying to get to. Uh, because they use gravity to bring the coal back down again. So, uh, yeah, that's bootleg mining. Then there were bootleg truckers who were taking it to all the cities. It was being used for home heat, unlike the coal here, to the best of my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, um, that the bituminous coals used pretty much entirely in industry, right? Turned into coke or uh, whatever, used for rail, used for factories, electric, things like that. Anthracite's used a little bit for factories and... Um, Apparently Scott Toilet Paper still burns anthracite coal to run their factory. Uh, but, um, and it's used somewhat for electricity, but only like locally there. But it's still like really used for home heating. Um, and so because of that, at the time, uh, people didn't have oil heat or electric heat yet. So the whole East Coast was burning anthracite to keep warm all winter. And so the bootleggers and the bootleg truckers were able to supply the East Coast with cheaper heat all through the Great Depression um, by selling it a dollar two less than company coal. And they didn't know those people though, so the way it worked is when people would save up and get a truck or whatever, they would take the coal, find a neighborhood in a city or somewhere far away, and just start knocking on doors, you know? 
saying, hey, we got coal for like $2 less a ton if you want it. <coughs> um, and then uh, people from the city started doing the same thing, only backwards, where they would save up and get a truck. They would drive up to the anthracite region and just drive around the, the hills looking for bootleg miners to buy coal off of. And there's a quote from a guy who was a, a kid at the time whose job was to stand out on the like main dirt road and try to flag down truckers to buy their coal. But. So that's it in a nutshell, and I guess the other nutshell is that World War II kind of caps it off. Uh, all these people are considered unemployed, uh, the draft starts, and also uh, factories are being retrofitted to produce war goods and stuff like that. And so there's very few people who bootleg through the war. A lot of people do come back and bootleg after the war, but I had to start somewhere. <coughs> and, uh, yeah, and it was never as big as it was during the 30s. So, that's that. Any? Sure. I'm, I'm wondering, like, I don't know, I was, it seems like you had a lot of background in this um, as you started to research it. No, maybe not. So I'm, I'm curious about... Keep digging into anything I hadn't turned over yet, which I thought I had really found everything I was going to find. But there was a guy who was trying to write a book about bootleg coal mining in the late 80s, early 90s. He was the child of, a boot, of two bootleg truckers. And he did all these interviews with the last remaining bootleggers from this time, uh, 40 or so of them. And then he got in a car accident and died before he could write the book. Um, I popped his widow's name in Google and just started like calling the numbers that it popped up, you know, and I got a hold of her. And uh, she had all his stuff in her basement. Some of it she had like archived in this one library. Um, and those oral histories are what I based the book around. I wasn't trying to write a book, uh, but a friend of mine, say one who had encouraged me earlier, said, uh, you know, I've written two books and you have more material than I ever did. So, yeah, those. And um, I had you guys read some quotes that were uh, pretty blunt and kind of fun, but there's a lot there's a lot of humor in them, you know. And what I tried to get across in the book is what it felt like to be those people, rather than just you know a list of facts in the order that they happened. So, so that's the juiciest thing. And then I started digging into uh, newspaper articles. Um, I made like a a very slow Google spreadsheet uh, of like 3,000 or so articles. Um, there was like some magazine coverage from the time. I found uh, a video, like a newsreel film that they had made about the bootleg miners in 35. Um, oh, and the government did some surveys. Uh, they chartered, like, they hired somebody with a plane to, like, map where all the bootleg mines were, and then they hired a bunch of unemployed miners to go mine-to-mine -mine surveying them, you know? And so they got a, a lot of information out of it, and a lot of... There was a lot of speculation in the newspapers. People would just say whatever suited their purpose. Oh, there's hardly any of them. Or, like, oh my god, there's millions of them, right? And so the government survey is the closest anybody ever got to actually knowing. So that was important, too. That's such a funny thing about early newspapers. <coughs> I feel like the numbers are always kind of off. There's like three different accounts that say completely different things. It's like mining those can be definitely a task, so to speak. I use them. Like, I would love to dig a little deeper just into the sort of the times that they were in. Like, what what about this particular time? I know you said it was a depression and 
um, sort of in between right before the depression and World War II. So why, why was that time the time that this happened and what were the circumstances they were in because of that? Yeah, um, anthracite coal, kind of, the whole industry, moved, like, everything that happened there kind of happened ahead of time of what happened here. So, um, when they started mining coal, it was earlier than the bituminous. When the industry crashed, it was earlier. The company towns went away decades earlier, too. And so, uh, bootleg coal peaked, I mean bootleg coal, excuse me, anthracite coal peaked just after World War One. Um, but, like, during World War One, uh, the Wall Street firms who owned the coal mines could see the writing on the wall that uh, a lot of World War One, the factories at home were powered by coal, but the machines of war were powered by oil. And as people, uh, like autom automobiles became more and more popular and uh, towns were structured around it and stuff. And it, so uh, J.P. Morgan and others, you know, um, kind of saw the writing on the wall with that and started divesting from anthracite coal. And so it was actually before the Depression even started, they were shutting down lots of coal mines. And, yeah. And I also think uh, they it's hard to imagine them getting away with what they did in any other time period, the bootleggers, that is, uh, because there was just so much else going on um, that they, they formed a truce with the with the state government for three successive governors. That basically, as long as they didn't shoot anybody, the state police wouldn't interfere. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's hard to imagine that working in more peaceful times. So, there's a, a lot of turbulence at home. Yeah, it seems like a, it was a very, um, a very turbulent time for them. I, I mean, and, like, these communities were very, like, heterogeneous from reading the book, right? They were, like, immigrant communities. Can you tell us about the people that were there and sort of their relationships to one another? Yeah, sure. It's a lot of second-generation immigrants uh, from Eastern Europe, Italy. Um, the Irish have been there for several more generations, and the Pennsylvania Dutch have been there for even longer. But uh, they still lived in neighborhoods that were very... Uh, I don't know if segregated is the right word because it worked for them that way, you know? But big thing of the history of anthracite coal is the 1902 coal strike. It's one of like, the more famous strikes in labor history in general. And like the big thing they learned after decades of trying to organize a union in the anthracite is that they had to work together across ethnicity. They couldn't have an Irish union, you know? They needed to have everybody in. And it was like an extremely well-learned lesson. So they were very... Uh, Actually, I think the Pennsylvania Dutch were some of the ones who spoke the least English, even though they had been there the longest. Um, but despite that, they knew that uh, they knew they sank or swam with people around them, whether they liked them or not, whether they could even talk to them or not. So, yeah. And how did how did that influence some of their tactics? Some of how did. I don't know. Uh, the Lithuanians, a lot of them were communists. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know if I have a good answer for that one. Yeah, I mean, the Molly Maguires, right? Mm -hmm. Where that was sort oh. of rooted in tradition. Yeah, 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 okay. Um, yeah, in the in the times before the Union was formed, um, yeah, the Molly Maguires, they, when the Irish came, and it was largely the Irish and the Welsh working together in the mines, uh, who very much didn't get along, and a lot of towns were, like, had one Welsh side and one Irish side. Um, when the Irish were trying to unionize, it really wasn't working, and they were getting crushed, and eventually, without much 
else to do about the situation. They may or may not have started just killing uh, mine owners, things like that. And I say may or may not because, like, all the court trials that went on were, like, super corrupt. And so it's hard to say what really happened. Um, but the end result of that, though, was some, like, temporary gains at specific mines. Uh, but also the coal companies used it as an excuse to round up the leaders of any ethnic organization they didn't like and kill them. So... Um, it's pretty brutal, and even though it was like a specific thing to the Irish, and even though like the Polish weren't even there yet and all that, it's still like a, a history held very much in common. Um, and it was also a history that was buried for a long time. People didn't want to talk about it because to talk about it at all might get you blacklisted or arrested or something like that. And so there's a whole generation who lived through the Molly Maguire's time that you just did not talk about it. And so, like, a lot of people who are descendants of Molly Maguire's don't know that. So, that's interesting. Do you feel like, have you, have you helped open up that conversation again in the course of writing this book in any way, or have you...? Uh, not with the Mollies. That's its own project. Um, there's still a big St. Paddy's Day parade every year, uh, hosted by the great-great-grandson of Jack Kehoe. Uh, the supposed leader of the Miley Maguires, um, who uh, still declares his innocence at the parade, you know, um, and uh, but but so that that's its that's its own thing. And there's more books written about the Miley Maguires than anything else in the coal region. But about this though, like I didn't know this history. A lot of local people like say like, oh man, I'm sorry, I just didn't even know any of this. But nobody did, you know. I talked to the the people who are still mining who are like, you know, maybe fifth generation down from this using the same methods that are all, like, if they stop mining today, nobody could do it again, you know, like that, the knowledge they have is like so specialized and so passed down. Um, but even they, they knew they used to be bigger back in the day, they knew some stuff, but they had, didn't know the scale of it either, you know, um, and a lot of the stories have been lost. I think the Red Scare has a lot to do with that. Uh, because there were plenty of communists involved, though they didn't, like, run it or orchestrate it. Um, and in the 50s, you know, that was that was bad times. Some of the people who were bootleg miners got hauled before, like, the McCarthy Committee, the House of Un-American Activities Committee. Uh, one guy got, like, deported to a country that he'd been born in but never really lived in, you know? Um, and so, and that was just, like, his his crime specifically was just having been a member of the Communist Party, which is not illegal, you know? But, uh, so people didn't want to be associated with that. Like, they didn't want people to know they were associated with that, and so there was a lot kept quiet. There's also a lot of violence during the time of this book, too, like, in terms of, like, uh, dynamiting strip, strip mine shovels and blowing up company equipment or stealing company equipment. And a lot of people took the, the secrets of who did what to their graves. Um, but so this book coming out and doing lots of events in the coal region has been great. Lots of people, it, it's just like an outpouring of things that people like feel like they don't have the opportunity to talk about. And actually, I said I'd get back to this, and here we are. My uh, my family, I didn't know they bootlegged coal, um, and I had asked my pappy, my grandfather, about it several times, and he just made some joke about like he had a mule named Jack, right, um, from like sometime he worked in the mine, but uh, finally I found some photos in an archive of bootleg miners, and I showed it to him, and uh, it was, the photos were from when the governor took a tour of the bootleg mines, and he saw the guy in the suit and goes, that guy ain't no miner, 
you know? Uh, and I was like, yeah, yeah, and I explained it. And then he's just like, yeah, my brother Merle, he ran the winch. I'm like, what are you talking about? And then he started describing me the, the bootleg mine, the family bootleg mine. Um, but he, being Pennsylvania Dutch, he was actually, they, like, he went to school, and he was the one, one who learned to read and write English. So, like, they, he didn't really work the bootleg mine, you know? But, like, these older siblings and stuff did. Uh, and it's just crazy how things don't come up when they're no longer relevant, when people don't know about them, when people don't talk about them. And since doing that, I've also learned all sorts of other family things people were involved in that just never come up. You know, a lot about, like, the textile workers' unions that my, uh, my mom and my aunts were involved in and things like that. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's really, really cool. Really, mm -hmm. what a journey. Um, the other thing I thought was really interesting when I was reading it um, was just, you know, we talk about, like, you're working or you're unemployed. And obviously there's, like, a lot of gray area in between there, but these were unemployed workers. And, like, I'm wondering if you could go into that and into sort of these councils uh, that they developed and some of this just, like, self-organization that came out of unemployment. Because it, it was, yeah, it was, like really surprising and interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when, when bad things happen to people, they uh, try to remedy them by doing everything they can think of that they've ever heard of working, you know? So one thing people did when they lost their jobs in the mines was try to work through the union and figure out if they could leverage getting jobs back or something like that. And the best they could get was, uh, like, they'd take a special collection of dues at the working mines and distribute it to everybody else, but it was just too unbalanced for that to work. And there was the whole equalization movement, which is another thing in this book that's too big to get into right at the moment, but it was a way of forcing the mines to employ more people um, and keeping everybody at half-time, basically, so everybody's part-time instead of half the people full-time, half the people laid off. Uh, but then the, the communists, uh, kind of countrywide and other places in the world, too, were organizing unemployment councils, which were uh, local unemployed people get together at, like, you know, they'd have a regular meeting or mass meetings, and then they would do things like try to pressure politicians to, I mean, social security is largely stems directly from that. Um, social security stems from that. Uh, they would also stop evictions, like not let cops take things out of people's houses. They would turn utilities back on, things like that. Uh, but that was very, um, you know, people came to meetings when they needed help, and they would kind of fade away again when they didn't so much anymore. So it it was massive and rolled along for a, a while, and, like, lots of people were involved, but few people were, like, steadily involved in it. Uh, and then bootleg mining. And so all these things, it, it was to nobody's advantage to, like, go to the union meeting and being like, oh, yeah, I'm also doing stuff with the communists, and I'm bootleg mining. You know, they, like, kept that a secret, <laughs> but it's, like... When all these big organizations are coming out of the same town of like 9,000 people or whatever, 15,000 people, like it's, it's pretty clear there's a bunch of overlap <coughs> um, and that they're doing one thing by day and another by night. Yeah. Wow. So if, if you could like take any piece of this book and write another whole book about it or like anything you discovered or is there, is there something else you sort of have on the horizon? Sort of whichever part of that question you feel like answering. Yeah, there's lots of things that I just couldn't follow the whole way down in this book. 
and one that I hope somebody else writes about is there were a bunch of black bootleg truckers from Baltimore and I think Philly as well and I really want to know more about them. Um, I'm pretty sure they were in the bootleggers unions which is another whole thing that the bootleggers formed unions. Um, but I couldn't find anybody specifically saying, like, yes, they were involved, you know? Though all signs point that way, I've found with, like, researching history, if it looks like something, you're wrong. You know? <laughs> like, there's always more to the stories. Um, but I would, I would love to know more about that. Um, also, I'd love to know more just about how it was distributed in the cities and things like that. But I don't plan to write another book about coal. This is... My book about coal. <laughs> this is the coal book. I this think, is the coal book. Is there anything else you would like to talk about before we sort of open it up to the audience? But uh, as I said, though, I invite you guys to ask about like publishing or writing as well. So. Good job. Thanks. <laughs> hey. Um, what do you What do you think made the Sorry. What do you think made like the extensive solidarity possible in the core region. Uh, a history of it working. The, like the history through the unions of like actually being able to solve things like that. And I think that's why it's not like I think it was common sense to them. Not not exactly how they did it or whatever, but to try. You know, and I think that's why it's not always common sense to us is because we haven't seen it working. You know, a lot of unions have been crushed and a lot of uh, I don't know. A, a lot of times you just have like so much drama with your own neighbors and stuff and co-workers so that... Like, specifically about equalization, like that feels oh. like a whole other level. Yeah, that's actually something somebody could probably also write a book about, the equalization movement where, they, like I said, they were forcing the companies to employ everybody part-time, and the companies hated that. Absolutely. Um, I don't know, dude. That's honestly, it's incredible, um, but... In the, I want to say it was the 50s, they once again tried to equalize the mines, and that time there wasn't enough solidarity to pull it off, and people were very, very bitter about it. And so the only people I've met in person, like living, who know anything about equalization, they remember that they hate it. You know? That it was like stupid idea, never would have worked, you know, half the community screwed over the other half of the community. So, I don't know. I don't know, but it is totally inspirational. Do you have a, do you have like a cool piece of research or like oral history or whatever that you like just couldn't find a way to fit into the book? Oh, countless. I don't even know though. I mean, I tried to, I thought this book would come out smaller because I wanted it to be smaller, you know? And this is like what I whittled it down to, but there's... I mean, like I said, 40 oral histories, interviews, and each of them is like an hour or two long. So just that, let alone, like I said, 3,000 newspaper articles, there's so much stuff. Uh, a lot of humorous stuff, you know, um, like, uh, oh, uh, no, there's so many things. Like, for, okay, for instance, j like I uh, talk about accidents in the bootleg mines just to like cover that. But, uh, but it happened very, very frequently, you know? And so you could write a whole book just about that, the whole world of that. Um, I had, like, different tags in my database, and one was just for fell in hole, because lots of people and things fell in holes. Um, you know, there was, like, a farmer whose cow fell in a hole, and they managed to get it out, you know? Um, there was... Uh, 
people who, who like had this huge snake that they claimed they found living in a bootleg mine, but then it, I, it turned out it was a um, April Fool's prank. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like all sorts of stuff. What What are some like things that have come up as you've talked about this book in the coal region? Mm. Okay, so uh, on strip shovels, you know, have you guys ever heard of greasers? People working on the strip shovels. No. So. Now it's pretty automated. Uh, it used to be, though, that the, the drag lines specifically, the ones that pick up the bucket, drop it down, then pull it back again, you used to have to have a guy standing on both sides just, like, covering the, the cable, which is, you know, yay thick in grease, to keep it operating. And uh, a good friend of mine's dad was like, oh, yeah, I remember when I was a greaser out in the mountain in the 70s, and so-and-so was on the other side, and... Uh, came lunchtime and he wasn't around, we couldn't find him, so we ate lunch, and when we went back and unspooled the wire, his clothes fell out. It just liquefied him. You know? And I'm like, this happened in my town to one of my buddies, you know, like, yeah. dad's co-workers, and it's crazy that, like, I don't already know that, you know? And he didn't talk about it like it was this one freak thing. I mean, it was a one freak thing, but, like, it's also... The reason I was writing a blog in the first place is because, at least in the anthracite region, there's so much stuff that people just think is normal that's totally not normal. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, lots of other things. The, the best thing that I've really been hoping for is I figured people have all sorts of stuff in their attics, you know, and if only I had access to it. Um, and one guy uh, who didn't make the event, he, like, sent this stuff with somebody else, sent me, sent along like a big photo of a bootleg mine with a company man standing in front of it. And apparently this guy, uh, Fritz, was demoing a house in Shimokin and in the wall found like a, a booklet of all these photos that were apparently uh, company documentation of the mines shortly before they blew them up. Um, so, big calling this guy. He, he really needs to get a voicemail because I want to visit and see the rest of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> But all, all sorts of things like that, lots of stories. One person told me, like, it, in front of a lot of people, was like, yeah, my grandpa had a bootleg mine in such and such town. And I didn't know what to say, because I knew the town he was talking about doesn't have coal in it. So I'm like, hmm, well, I don't want to shoot this guy down in front of everybody. And then he just goes, I didn't find any coal, though. Is that coal? Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Man. So all sorts of things. Have you guys ever heard of anything comparable here? Well, that's what I was. That's what I was thinking this whole time is that you know, growing up in coal country, and and I had I've never heard of any of this. You know, I mean, I'm aware of um, family mines, like you know, the the holler that I grew up in. There is a mine there that you know, they dug coal like the family dug coal. To heat with, mm. but like a big like an operation where they they, they took it and, and sold it somewhere. I'm I'm not aware of that. Um, but lots of families I know had their own mine because one they would get coal out of it, but also that's where our water came from. So we had um, well, well after you know after the coal was mined and it you know it leaves there after mm -hmm. the space was there. So then. Um, groundwater started coming you know it kind of springs leak kind of situation mm -hmm. and so my grandpa had um a pipe that was just shoved back in that mine and gravity fed down the hill 
to our houses in the holler. So we drunk mm-hmm. coal bank water is what it's known as here, you know. And there are lots of families that I know that that had that similar situation. They kind of, like after you didn't need the coal, it's filled up with water. So and it was it's really good water. I mean, Lucky it's, for you, it's yeah. not always. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's not always, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's that's pretty okay. common, but yeah, I mean, I've it was the first I'd heard of this. Yeah, I mean, I think there's reasons it happened there and not here. Uh, one of them is that they they start eventually it wasn't in secret, but they could start in secret because there were so many small seams like up in the mountain, you know. Uh, but also because they could sell it for home yeah. heat, whereas what are you guys going to sell it to? U.S. Steel, right. you know, like yeah. they're not trying to buy. You know, they're not trying to go to the weekly auction and buy a little bit of coal from everybody, but yeah, yeah. Do you know if that groundwater is still running? Yeah, 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 yeah that's still. I mean, city water has been ran to those houses now, but I mean, yeah. it's still, um, still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's the name? Is the name Dog Hole? Mines, <coughs> some people say, I don't know. Little, I I've not like heard that term. I've heard that term, yeah. Yeah, I think maybe they call it that in Virginia at least. For Dog Hole Mines. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, the little ones you just dig out. But I mean, oh, um, I mean, I still, I still to this day, right now, um, we'll see people beside the road, like you know, on Highway 15. I always see people right at that cut through, like where Carfork Lake is, and they'll be there just picking up the pieces of whatever has, you know, fell out of that seam where they've cut through for the road in the winter time. Like I'll see them out there picking up. For home heat. For home heat, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. What was your process like trying to get this book published? Uh, I just wrote most of it ahead of time, and then I came up with all these plans, you know, like that I wrote out, like, here's how I'm going to promote it, and da-da-da-da-da, because, like, I know a little bit about book publishing, and it seems, yeah, difficult. Um... And then I sub- submitted, uh, you know, some chapters and a bunch of other materials to all the, like, radical presses that I know of in, in the U.S. Uh, it's like, eight of them or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I heard no from, from like, the first seven or whatever, which I expected, because every story of somebody getting something published is, like, yeah, like, you know, 20th times the charm, right? And then the finally PM Press just said, uh, oh, yeah, we do cold stuff. And I'm like, wait, that that's it? Like, I have this whole thing about how I'm going to sell all these books. And they're like, no, we, we're just the ones who do coal stuff. I'm like, okay. And then I, like, really pushed hard to try to get some pre-orders because it's with my understanding that the more pre-orders you get, the more it tells the publisher, like, to take a risk. But they're just like, oh, we would have printed the same either way. You did really good, but, you know. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, but, yeah. Um, but once I started working with them, I still... Like, this is edited by friends and family. You know, they gave, like, a final edit. But uh, another author friend of mine calls it friendsploitation, where he just, uh, <laughs> you know, send out a chapter to this friend. Oh, they're finished with it. Send it to that one. Just, you know, some of the, like, a lot of these chapters were probably edited, like, seven or eight times um, by different people. Um, yeah. How long did it take you? Just, like, uh... The nice round number I've made up in my head is five years. It may yeah. be a little more or a little less, but uh, a long time. But I was, you know, working. I went to college in that time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you want to write another book? Is yeah. something you would consider? Yeah. Um, if it's on a topic that uh, isn't, like, 
either there's a specific reason why I can write about it or just like hasn't been written about in general yet. Um, but I also, I mean, I'm like working on something, but in general though, I don't want to write just to write, you know? Um, it's kind of painful. It's not that, f I mean, it's fun, but only like <laughs> retrospectively is it fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, it hurts. <laughs> I had some. I had someone tell me that that you know you better make sure you want a book before you have a book. <laughs> that, was, that was the advice. And I was like, okay. So yeah, I mean, yeah. now is really great. Like I was looking forward to that the whole time. It's like one day it's just going to be done. Yeah. Then you don't even have to be writing it anymore. Chair <laughs> <laughs> next to a stack of it. Yeah. 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 So what is your next project focused on? Uh, not Can important. you tell us generally? <laughs> <laughs> a brief history of American boycotts. This is what I'm researching. I normally really hate talking about projects like before they're almost done, you know. But whatever. So cut that. Yeah. <laughs> no, just loud beeping noise. I want a yeah, loud sensor noise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll next, thing you'll, okay. next thing you'll hear on the UMT is. Mitch Chapman's working on a new book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they, they, they leaked it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just to beat everybody to the punch, that's low. Mm. Buzzfeed stuff. Who wouldn't do that? Uh, TMZ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the next thing you know, we'll be catching pictures of you that are a little unflattering. Just like walking. Yeah. Cool. Anything else from anybody? Any other thoughts or... I think it's fascinating that they just kind of let them do it. Like there was just an agreement that it was like, all right, you know. Yeah, I mean, there there was a lot of conflict, and they were always, the companies were always like trying a new thing, yeah. you know, to try to stop them. And so it's like a little bit cat and mouse in that way. Like at one point, the bootleg union is hiring lawyers to send out a state for the bootleg truckers who have gotten arrested in other states, you know. Just the fact that there was a bootleg union is, is uh, I mean, that, that, that whole phrase, like, yeah. I'm like that, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. great. I really wish I knew more about, like, the leader, and I dug and dug and dug, but the guy who was, like, their first president and then was just, like, their general spokesperson after that uh, was a bootleg miner who had one leg and continued bootleg mining. <laughs> that's and, uh, Yeah. Is there, like, uh, can you think of, or did you find any sort of, like, close contemporary equivalent to something like this or is it kind of like a yeah i don't know what to do with this information um but no but there's like tons of international stuff it seems like almost everywhere in the world has has equivalents to this a lot of the time uh mafias and cartels like get involved though and it's like totally exploitative or a lot of time people are making their sales to a corporation who can then like leverage them down to pretty much nothing like uh I never know if I say it right, but Potosi, Potosi, in um, Bolivia, it's the uh, it's a silver mine that's been running for 500 years. It was like one of the original things the conquistadors opened, and it's a scary ass mountain that is like collapsing all the time. And uh, there's no companies there anymore. It's just people who go in and like get what they can and then sell it for what they can. But because they're at like the mercy of the people who buy silver, like the corporations who buy silver, you know, like they make like nothing. Uh, but there's a really cool documentary called The Devil's Miner because they uh, they're Catholics and they worship God above ground and Satan below ground. 
Um, but I just saw another like a uh, short documentary on I forget maybe it was Philippines or it was some some island uh, that like has been they mined tin there forever and uh, from shipping it away there's just like tons of tin on the ocean floor and so they like have this like DIY scuba diving equipment and they go like 45 meters down and have these big hoses and just suck up the the floor of the ocean and and filter it for tin. And then, uh, but like, it's sandy, and so like as they suck it, they go lower and lower, and they're down there for a couple hours, and sometimes it just like caves in on them, um, and all that to get like that much tin, you know. That's funny you say that because there was a guy here yesterday who bought your book last week. <laughs> he was talking about how um, that kind of that same thing happened here, where people would um, like dredge the river. Yeah for coal that had fell off in the process of getting it out of here and would take it and resell That's it. That's interesting. Yeah, river coal was a big thing yeah. in the anthracite and too I for a long time. never heard that till he till we talked about it. Like it There's this uh, historian up my way who one summer uh, built a replica coal dredger and went out and dredged coal like historically yeah. for the summer and then at the end of the summer he just took it apart again but he like made a YouTube video. Um. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I don't do things recreationally, I do them historically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. <clears throat> I had a question and I forget it. It's really uh -oh. bothering me. <laughs> We're waiting on you. Uh, yeah. So on. what's the um what's the industry like now, Anthracite Co.? I mean, is it in the same predicament we're in here or No, there's not really well Are you guys still mining? Yeah, so the to the extent I understand it down here, right? is like it's you know big corporations that then go bankrupt ship, shift the money around and sell it again and yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but uh no there's not really like like the big biggest coal company during this time was reading coal and iron company um or philadelphian reading coal and iron company they still exist but it's been sold so many times that back then it was owned by jp morgan and now it's like owned by some guy in Pottsville. Right, yeah. um, I think like the biggest operations might have three strip mines, and they're smaller strip mines than they are here because the coal isn't again flat. Like you can only get yeah. so much at a time, um, and there's still independent miners, which is like a a name for bootleggers who have leases, basically. But there's only, to my knowledge, three of them still operating. The bootleggers union. They don't call themselves that, or even necessarily seem to know that that's where they came from, but the Independent Miners Association still exists. And I tried to, like, you know, like, hey, maybe I can, like, sell merch for your dude fundraiser or something, you know? And they were like, call us this time next year, we might not even exist. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, they have a secretary who I believe works eight hours a month, you know? And all they really do is uh, help make sure the the miners who are still active like have their asses covered with paperwork you know there's also a, a like an underground mine rescue group that's similarly it's like a co-op of the other miners um, the people still mining and you know they just keep trained on rescues so yeah but uh yeah it's barely existent the price does follow bituminous a little bit so yeah the cost price of coal's up right now but you know for how long and also they have trouble finding people to work in the mines even though the one i had gone down there were only two people underground one person up top right 
they're still running their mine with a car engine, though this is a Model T there, and uh, they were using a Chevy 350, so <laughs> wow. big upgrade. But um, no, but uh, but they said they used to have more people work for them, but because it fluctuates so much, um, you know, when when the price is low, those like people go out and get other jobs, and then after a certain number of years of doing that, they're just like, I'm tired of going and getting a job and quitting it again just to come back here, you know. So also. As much as they talk about how they love it, uh, also their families are like, we want you to stop doing that. You know? <laughs> We're proud of you, but we also want you to stay alive. Yeah. So. Yep. So, not much. But so, we definitely don't have billboards advertising that we're hiring. So. <laughs> I can't even talk about that. You can't catch there. looks on camera. Or on can't even talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Sorry. Go ahead. I was just gonna like it's just such a it's just like a epic story that's just like crazy and sort of powerful and sort of sense of solidarity. And I'm wondering if if someone were to turn it into like a narrative with like a character, how would you want that done? Uh well I'll say this, like if it were ever to be turned into an audiobook, I know the guy I wanna read it. <laughs> uh, uh, just this guy, he's a high school teacher, but he's got a really thick... So, like, because, like, it's such a polyglot in each town of which ethnicity is settled in each town, every, like, all the towns have their own accents, you know, even if they're, like, five miles from each other. And this one guy just has, like, a dead-on Shenandoah accent um, that's, I don't know, very specific and, I don't know, he'd, he'd just be a good reader. Uh, <laughs> um, but a bootlegger the movie... Bootlegger the movie? Bootlegger the movie? Oh god, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'd watch it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd watch it too. We can premiere it here. But like, <laughs> what's that say? We can premiere it here. We okay, can, we can okay. add it to our schedule. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, okay, I mean, if that were to happen, yeah, I would hope and think that they'd want to just go to the people who are still mining now, you know, and have them do as much of it as possible. And you just have to, because I don't have, like, the single narrative of any one person, you know, you just have to mash up a lot of different people's stories, because, like, so many things happen, right, within this, like, 10, 15 year period, and no one person was at all of them. You know, different people are in there for different times. Everybody has a weird story. Nobody's, like, the generic coal miner that fills all the niches, you know? Um... Like, people, like, moved away, tried to work somewhere else, or, like, whatever. You know, all sorts of things happen. Um, so you probably have to mash them together. They made a movie about the Molly Maguires, um, which in the Anthracite region people love, but uh, Sean Connery, starring Sean Connery. Uh, but it, it flopped really hard. This was in the 70s. Um, so not too many people have seen it. Though he did get a statue built in the center of town that's... Um, of a of a man being hung he has a bag over his head and it has like this artistic effect of uh, making you like identify with whoever's behind the bag you know but then the town itself found it too disturbing and built a wall in front of it um, and it's actually like three blocks from this high school i was working at and the the teachers at the high school didn't know it was there so that's what <laughs> <laughs> Statue you can't miss. <laughs> yeah. No, you have to know. It's like in the CVS parking lot. Oh my God. <laughs> That's, That's amazing. amazing. What's you know this town? Where was the town? Uh, Mackinac City. 
field trip. Right. Visit on you for a trip. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I realize we've had you in the hot seat for a minute, and uh, I feel like we're we can. I don't know. I want to yep. like open us up to maybe just if we want to just hang out or whatever. Yeah. We don't have to do this formal thing. Stop recording. Yeah. Sure. Okay. That's Mitch Troutman, author of The Bootleg Coal Rebellion, The Pennsylvania Miners Who Seized an Industry 1925-1942, to which chronicles the unemployed miners who fought for dignity and autonomy within the coal industry, and fought to own their own work and the profits that came from it. You can learn more about the book and the author at bootlegcoal.com. You've been listening to Mountain Talk. If you liked this episode, you can listen to more at WMMT.org or download as a podcast from SoundCloud. From all of us here at Mountain Community Radio, thanks for listening. You love me, but you don't love at all. Love is all done, withered and gone. They treated me mean and dirty too. They like the way my women do. Now I'm leaving